This podcast is sponsored by Rask Invest, Owen's complete guide to money and investing. Visit the Rask Finance website to learn more and join today. Hello, and thanks for tuning in to the Australian Investors Podcast, a series exploring the investment philosophies and journeys of some of Australia's leading investors and financial thinkers. I'm Owen Raskovich, founder of The Rask Group. For show notes and other episodes in this series, as well as free educational resources, please visit www.raskfinance.com. Before we go on, it's important to remember the Australian Investors Podcast is provided for educational purposes only and should not be relied upon to make an investment, financial or taxation decision. The information included in this podcast does not take into account your needs, goals or objectives and guests appearing on the show may have a financial interest in some of the products mentioned. Please read all the important disclosure documents and refer to the RAS Group's Financial Services Guide on the RAS Finance website. Mary Manning is Portfolio Manager for Alliston Capital's Asian and Indian Funds. Mary grew up in Calgary, Canada, but early on she knew she needed to get to New York to pursue her career in finance and investment banking. Driven to succeed, she completed her undergraduate degree and got a job at what would become City Investment Bank. From there, she experienced the Asian crisis before relocating to Moscow to experience the Russian crisis. Over the years, Mary has worked across the world while completing her MBA at Harvard and a PhD in economics in Sydney. She's worked for Howard Marks at Oak Tree and George Soros at Soros Funds Management. Today, Mary is at the forefront of emerging markets and leads a team of analysts to find the fastest growing companies in Asia. Mary takes us through her process, misconceptions about China and emerging markets, the Indian opportunity, and loads more. Please enjoy this conversation with Mary Manning of Elliston Capital. Mary, thanks for joining me on the show. Thanks, Owen. Thanks very much for having me. I spend a lot of my time in this podcast series focusing on the person behind um, the the investor, I suppose, if you like. It's, I'm trying to draw out your personal experiences and see how that shapes you as an, in, an investor later in life. And your history is so diverse. Um, you've been across continents. You've worked at some of the most prestigious firms or alongside some great investors. So I'm thrilled that you joined me on the podcast and I'm looking forward to hearing your story. Let's go back to where it began for you. Why don't you fill listeners in, tell us where you grew up, Tell us who was involved in your journey early on in life to become interested in finance and where you went to school, you studied, etc. Okay. Um, yeah, I'm originally from Canada, as you may be able to tell from my accent. Mm-hmm. And um, I studied finance at, at university. And then there was uh, one person every year from the um, Department of, of Finance at my university um, got a job on Wall Street. So there was, it was Solomon Brothers, for those of you who have a, mm-hmm. a good memory. Um, in, the, in the olden days, it used to be one of the, the major investment banks on Wall Street. And they hired one person from my university every year. And so I made it my goal when I was in third year uni that I wanted to be that person. Hmm. So I studied very, very hard and I studied everything about Wall Street and I, I sorted myself out and I got the job. So that was um, quite a big move because I'm from Calgary in Canada, which is a relatively small it's, um, nice you know, city. It's a very nice city, good skiing, <laughs> but um, not really known as a center of finance. So mm-hmm. and I was quite young, I was only 21 and I moved to New York and it was like jumping right in the in the deep end. And to be totally honest, I I didn't really have a good sense of what was <laughs> what was in store for me. Um, so I started as an investment banker and I worked in, in M&A. Mm. Uh, but that was really, really good training um, just in terms of building up the, the basic skills that you need to be a good investor and a good analyst because it's it's all modeling, all math. I was, you know, mm. in the in the 1990s and I'm dating myself by <laughs> saying that, but in the 1990s, it was still um, very long hours for, for investment making analysts. It was like 100 hours a week just doing modeling yeah, right. and that kind of stuff. But it was, it was helpful in, in giving me those core skills that you need to be a good investor, I think. 
And how did you find the cultural change from Calgary to New York? As a young person, was it just excitement or? Yeah, it was excitement. And it was, there's a lot of adrenaline. I mean, now I couldn't, I couldn't work those hours for, but, but then, you know, the whole city, it's called the city that never sleeps for a reason. Some people are out having fun. Some people are working, but nevertheless, it's a city that never sleeps. And so it was just really, really exciting. Mm. And it was quite a good um, jump for me in terms of a worldview because, um, you know, it, New York was the, was the center. And so um, I worked on a lot of different deals uh, around the whole world and um, people on our analyst team, there's, there was about a um, hundred analysts all together, and you know they came from many different countries and many different backgrounds. Mm-hmm. So it was really a big kind of step change in my worldview to move to New York when I was that age. Was there anyone earlier in your life that influenced you or pushed you towards finance, or was it just your own decision to? To chase that dream, I suppose. No, it was my own decision. No one in my family works in finance. In fact, when I said, oh, I'm moving to New York to work at a bank, they were like, why do you have to work at a bank in New York? Can't you be a teller here? <laughs> I was like, I'm not going to be a teller. Yeah. Um, I'm going to do something totally different. So no, nobody in my family works in finance. It was just, um, I really liked the, the math aspect of it. Mm-hmm. And then, um, yeah, I found it quite exciting. And once I got in, it just built from there. It's city in New York, is that correct? Where yeah, so I started with Solomon uh, Brothers. Yeah. And then, as you may remember, Solomon and Brothers and Smith Barney merged. Mm-hmm. And then Citigroup took over all of them. Mm-hmm. So all those three um, transactions happened while I was there. Yeah. And then is it at that time you put your hand up to go to Moscow? Is that correct? Yes, it is correct. So actually, I put my hand up for something else before that, which was um, quite important in terms of the job that I do now. So it was uh, 1997 during mm-hmm. the Asian crisis. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, we used to have these staffing meetings for the M&A analysts. And the staffer who, you know, was in charge of doling out the work said, okay, we need someone to go to Korea and work on a deal there because one of our major clients is in big trouble with this Asian crisis. Mm-hmm. Who wants to go? Nobody put up their hand except for me. And so I went to Korea and I was there for a couple months during the Asian crisis trying to sell uh, a business of, of one of our clients that was in trouble. And that was really interesting because, you know, Asia, as, as we've seen many times since, has ups and downs. Mm. And it was a good time in my career to just see what it looks like in a down cycle. And so that sort of got me interested in, in emerging markets and, and in Asia in particular. And then at the end of that year, you know, I, I did want to go to business school and get an MBA. And it's, it's very prescriptive in the U.S. You have to have a resume that looks a very mm-hmm. certain way. Now, whether that's good or bad is, a, is another discussion. But uh, anyways, you need international experience. And so I want international experience. So I asked around Solomon Brothers and there was an opening in the Moscow office. Mm-hmm. So I um, signed up to go, to go do a year in the Moscow office. And that, again, was a very interesting time because it was during the Russian crisis about six months after I got so there. So you going from one crisis to another. Exactly. <laughs> so I don't know. Maybe it was me. <laughs> I hope not. But um, again, it was. I was very young. I think I was 22 at the time. And so if I'd been later on in my career, I might have been panicked because clearly this was not a good career choice <laughs> to go somewhere that was crashing. But given where I was in my life, it was just really intellectually quite interesting. And um, yeah, it was just a fascinating time to, to be there. So I did emerging markets from Russia and then I moved to London and did other emerging markets like South Africa and Turkey and um, other things in, in Eastern Europe. Well, when you're in Russia, we, uh, I'm going to make an assumption here and say you didn't speak Russian? I know Yana Gavaritz Paruski. It means I don't speak Russian. Okay. <laughs> and I did, um, as part of it, I was supposed to take Russian. So every, I think it was three mornings a week or something, they had a uh, person come in to teach me. Mm-hmm. But I had totally underestimated how hard it is to have a different alphabet. Mm. And they used to tease me at the office because after months, I still, you know, you have to, like, P is R. I can't even remember what it is, but I couldn't even read. I sounded like a kindergarten student reading. <laughs> and it was quite hard. So I did learn, you know, basic so I could get around Moscow. But no, I don't speak Russian. Okay. Yeah. So you got your international experience and that was to get your MBA. Well, not only to get your MBA. 
but you used that experience to get into Harvard, yep. if I'm not mistaken. And how was that experience? That, that again, that was absolutely, that was my favorite time of my life intellectually. Mm-hmm. It was just amazing to be in, a, in an environment and with a group of people who um, not all think the same way, but um, yeah, it was just a very amazing intellectual experience. And it also, that also really um, improved my, my worldview because, um, you know, not dissimilar to the analyst class at Solomon Brothers, there's people from all over the world. I think now almost 50% of the people at, at Harvard Business School are, have, have an international background or have worked mm-hmm. internationally. Um, so that was great. And it's, um, you know, Harvard, the way that they teach there is quite different. It's all case method. So it's not, this is how you do a DCF and then you spit it back out on the test. It's, mm-hmm. we're going to do a case study of a company in Brazil that got into cash flow problems and they're getting sold to someone else and now you need to value it using a DCF and figure out how much they should sell it to the private equity firm mm-hmm. for. And so it's it's actually really, really good training to be the kind of investor that, that I am now because you're just, for two years, you're just looking at business case studies, case study after case study after case study. And it really helps train your mind to just look at businesses and analyze them. So I'm, I'm quite thankful that I went to Harvard for that reason among many others um, because I think it would have just been boring to be like, this is how you do a DCF. Mm-hmm. This is tell you <laughs> well, presumably you would have known a lot of that from your modeling it yeah exactly yeah. so um yeah it was a fantastic experience and i did two summer internships while i was at harvard one was in beijing at a venture capital firm <laughs> so that was that was totally random because this was no one was focused on china then and i met this lady who had started a, a venture capital firm and she said i meet lots of really good entrepreneurs and they have amazing ideas but they don't know anything about business and they they don't know how to do an income statement. So I put together these sort of standardized models. So any entrepreneur could sit down and like put their <laughs> put their business idea into um, a form that, that venture capitalists could understand. And then I did another internship at G Capital in Hong Kong. And that um, that was my first exposure to India. Um, there was the time, it was the you know late 1990s when there was lots of, um, you know, the call centers going on mm. in Bangalore. So I did a lot of work in that and some other work in healthcare. So yeah, overall, the the academic experience plus the internships I did there was was really fantastic. Yeah, it experience. sounds very worldly, jet setting around and, and working and from uh, moving from place to place. It's, it sounds like a, a wonderful time of, in your career. Um, what job did you get out of? doing the MBA and I suppose um, were you looking for work or did it kind of come to you because you're a Harvard MBA graduate? No, so I was definitely looking for work. Okay. So it's not cheap to go to Harvard <laughs> as an MBA. So yep. you kind of come out of there with a, with a big student loan. So you it's, you don't have the um, luxury of just sitting around waiting for people to come to you. So no, I was very, very specific in terms of what I was targeting. And I made the decision that I wanted to go back to New York um, at that point in my career. Lots of things happen in New York. It's mm-hmm. the, <laughs> the center of finance for a reason. Um, and I also wanted to um, move into... Um, equity investing. So one thing I didn't like when I was at GE Capital, it was private equity and the venture capital. It's really exciting, but it takes a long time mm. to figure out if you're right or not. I mean, some of the deals at the private equity firm I was at were working on were like taking five, six years to exit. Mm. That's a really long time. So, um, but I did like the sort of analysis. So um, I applied for a job at Soros Funds Management, which is the, the vehicle of, of George Soros. And I got that job, which was, mm. which was really exciting. <laughs> and um, yeah, so I went to work at Soros and I looked primarily financials, global financials. And um, I did that for a few years. And it was, yeah, it was, again, a, a really interesting firm to work for. And to have someone who's an intellectual leader, not just in, in terms of, of finance, but he's also done a lot in terms of philanthropy mm-hmm. and, you know, his background in, in terms of, um, you know, coming out of, of Eastern Europe and, um, you know, fleeing the the Holocaust is just a, an amazing story. To, so to work at a firm like that and for someone like that was was really fantastic. Mm. Um 
I'm going to ask you a question at the end on who your favorite investor is or the mo- who you learned the most from. But on your first day, did you know of George and you knew his track record? Um, how did you feel going into the office on the first day? Do you remember? Um, I'm highly confident I was nervous. <laughs> I can say that. Um, but probably a little excited too. I mean, at that time, he had also already transitioned a little bit off to doing a lot of the nonprofit. He was an open society institute. Um, okay. And he, he had transitioned to doing a, a lot of nonprofit stuff. Um, but his son was, was, uh, uh, Robert Soros was quite significant in the in the organization, and then there was also some like um, he was a PM who I reported to directly. So I'm, I'm sure I was nervous because I actually was given financials. I didn't have a background in doing financials, mm-hmm. so to be given a new sector and to not really <laughs> know how to analyze it um, was was a bit nerve wracking. But um, you know, overall, I, I was just thinking that this this was a good opportunity, and I'm going to mm-hmm. swing for the fences and see how it goes. Mm. Were you? Um, looking at the short side as well as going long. Yeah. Yeah. So um, at Soros, it, it's a, it's a, where at the time it was a long short uh, hedge fund. Mm-hmm. So that, that's a very good point because doing short analysis is very, very different than what you do as an investment banker or obviously in private mm-hmm. equity. Um, and so I got a very good piece of, of um, advice from Robert Soros, which I still use today in, in my own investing. He said, when you're looking at financials, um, the, the getting the long call, right, is, is about the, the income statement. So you want banks that have, good loan growth and net interest margins are rising and the P is cheap. And he said, if you want to make money for with banks on the short side, you have to analyze the balance sheet. That's the only financial <laughs> statement that counts. You need to find banks that have big holes in their balance sheet. And, you know, the GFC was a perfect example of mm. this. If you had just forgotten about income statement and cash flow and focused on the banks that had holes in their balance sheet, you could have made a fortune. Um, so so I still look at that today. We're obviously a long-only fund. But if, I ha- if I'm looking at a, a bank or a financial and I'm not comfortable with their balance sheet, then we don't look at it at all. Hmm. That's an interesting way to look at it and, and, and great insight. Um, you were there for a few years. Um, and from what I can tell, did you go to, to Oak Tree from there? Yes. Yeah, so I went to Oak Tree from Soros. And um, at Soros, I was doing global. Um, but I, I do really like emerging markets. So, you know, you said you're trying to, to identify who the investor is behind the fund. One thing that's that's very specific about my way investing is I hands down prefer emerging markets. Hmm. I, I with all due respect to people who invest in other markets, I find developed markets kind of boring. Mm. Uh, you know, there's no growth. Um, everything works the way it's supposed to. It's, you know, nothing's very exciting. <laughs> Emerging markets are very, very exciting. And I much prefer to invest in, in those kind of, of markets. And also I am a growth investor. That's, I far prefer growth to value. And so there's growth in emerging markets. To be a growth investor in, in economies that are growing at one and a half, two percent is pretty hard. Mm. Um, so I, I really like emerging markets and Oak Tree at the time, and they still are, was a leader in emerging markets. They had about a six billion dollar long short emerging markets hedge fund. Mm-hmm. Um, so I went to work for them and again doing doing financials. And yeah, that was that was very, very global. So uh, we had to travel once a quarter. And so one quarter you'd be in Turkey and then you'd be in South Africa and then you'd be in Asia for a month. And wow. um, yeah, it was just good to, to really understand what's what's going on in the world. I think that that on the ground experience and it's something we still use in our fund today um, was really sort of ingrained in, at Oak Tree. Hmm. I'm looking at your CV and I'm thinking, you know, at this stage in your career, everything's looking really good. Um, you've got experience, you've got study under your belt, but then you decide to pursue a PhD. Yep. So <laughs> what, what, what prompted the move back to you, a- academia? Yeah. What was I thinking? That's what my parents <laughs> said. What are you thinking? Um, 
Well, for starters, I had just gotten married, so my husband is an Aussie. Um, he, we actually met through work. He he was a, a Aussie stockbroker in New York, mm-hmm. and when I was at Soros, I I covered Aussie banks. So he called me for about two years trying to <laughs> get me to buy CBA, and I let him roll into voicemail, and then. Um, we actually we met and we got married and uh, the rest is history. But anyways, we um, had just gotten married and wanted to move to Australia. We thought that this was New York is not a good place to raise children in my view. Mm-hmm. So we thought, you know, we want to make our life in Australia. So we moved here. And I, um, you know, I do have a passion, not not for economic development, but when you're doing emerging markets, you do notice that there are there's a huge discrepancy in wealth. I mean, some, I don't mean to sound like an economist here, but the, the Gini coefficients in a lot of countries like South Africa or Brazil or even China now are very high. So the, the Gini coefficient measures the, the richest part of the population versus the poorest population. So um, this is something that uh, intellectually sort of I wanted to think about mm-hmm. <laughs> for a, a prolonged period of time. So I did a PhD in economics, and um, it was focused on economic development. And this is something which actually still, you know, I, I run an Asia fund, and there's lots of countries, India, I run an India fund too, um, you know, that, that sort of economic development and the rising middle class and how are you going to get literally billions of people in Asia out of poverty is something that... Um, you know, still, yeah, it's fascinating. And, and it, it, sadly, uh, after three years and, and lots of money and countless hours of hard work, I came to the conclusion that I'm a compassionate capitalist <laughs> and that, you know, I had to work with during my PhD, you know, like the UN and World Bank and these sorts of organizations. And I came to the conclusion that I don't think they're, they're doing very much good, that, mm. that aid and that sort of, um, approach to, to economic development is not what the answer is. You're better off now. I'm, this is a, this is a bit of a stretch, but um, you know, running an India fund and investing in India, or people who start companies in in these, like look at Tencent and Alibaba. They've created hundreds of thousands of jobs, mm. which has done way more for the economic development of China than a loan from the World Bank. So I kind of came out on the okay, I'm a compassionate capitalist, and um, I learned a lot. I was also an associate professor at um, Sydney Uni while I was uh, doing my PhD, and I actually learned a lot about macroeconomics, much more so from being a professor and having to teach it. To other people mm. than, than by doing it myself. But that is actually very helpful in the job that I do now because, you know, certainly with the trade war and with all the noise around the Fed and QE, uh, it's been very helpful to actually understand that. I think a lot of equity investors who don't have a macro macro background maybe don't have as much of an in-depth understanding. Mm. It's interesting you mentioned teaching um, others about macro has helped you. It sounds very sim- similar to the, the Feynman technique where you, you teach someone else and you fill in your own blanks. Yeah. Um, so you've you've pursued the PhD, which sounds fantastic, and then you decide to go back to Oak Tree. Is that correct? So they called me and they said um, someone else had taken my job while I was doing my PhD, mm-hmm. and coincidentally he had just left. And they said, "Okay, you're done your PhD. Would you would you like your your job back?" And um, you know, I I had decided that yes, I did want to go back into investing, and so I said yes, but I don't want to work in New York. I want to work in Singapore hmm. because I think. If you're going to be an Asian investor, an emerging markets investor, and you spent your whole life in Connecticut, mm-hmm. <laughs> that that seems inconsistent to me. So I said, you know, if I'm going to do Asia, I, I want to be on the ground mm-hmm. in Asia. So we moved to Singapore and lived there for five years. And again, being on the ground is, is really helpful. Uh, but one thing I will say is I much prefer investing in Asia from Australia. It's my favorite place of all the places, uh, London, New York, um, Singapore, and, and Sydney. Sydney's by far my favorite because you're in the same time zone. So mm-hmm. you know what's going on during the day. New York is, is a bit frustrating because you're asleep when everything's going on. Mm. And being on the ground has its benefits, but it's also very, very noisy. So you have 
tons of analysts and companies and on the ground chit chat and, you know, <laughs> around the barbecue on the weekend. And it, it does get very noisy. So, um, I prefer being in Sydney. We, we come here. We do our work. When we need to be on the ground, we go and spend time on the ground and then we come back. Mm. So it's a, it's a great place to invest in Asia from here. So let's talk about that transition. So you've come, what, what prompted you to come back from Singapore to Sydney? Um, so Singapore is a great place to live when you have very small children, <laughs> um, because well, I'll be totally honest with you, you can get very inexpensive help. And so if you're you're working and um, you know it's it's a great place to have very small children, but they get bored pretty easily. Okay. And um, I have two kids, so um, I had my my daughter was born in Singapore. I already had a son who was about one when we moved there, and. Um, when my son was about to start kindy, we thought, well, we need to make a decision where we're going to live because we don't want to be, you know, once your kids are in school, it's much harder to uproot them. And mm. it's not impossible, but it's it's better, I mm. think, if, you, if you're if um, you sure. stable. So we said, okay, we're going to pick somewhere in the world where we're going to live for the next 12 years <laughs> where our kids are in school, 12 plus years. And so we actually left Singapore and we didn't have a strong idea where we were going to go. We were just going to travel around and, and see. Mm-hmm. So we went back to Canada and spent a few months there. And I, I absolutely love Canada, but there, unless you're in Toronto, there's not the sort of finance jobs. And even in Toronto, there's not the kind of jobs that my husband and I were looking for. Mm-hmm. So then we went back to New York for a month. New York as like two, um, you know, as a young unmarried person in New York with mm. two toddlers, <laughs> two totally different cities. And so after a month of there, we were like, no, nah, can't do this. So we went to Connecticut. We were bored out, <laughs> completely bored after like <laughs> two afternoons there. So, you know, things were going down the list. And then we just looked at each other one day and we said, you know, my husband comes from the best quality of life country in the whole world like what on earth are we thinking mm. so we moved back to australia and neither of us had jobs we didn't really even have a plan uh we just moved back here and i made a list of every single fund in australia that did asia or emerging markets and i just sent them all emails and yeah that's how i ended up at ellerson <laughs> great um did ellerson so they had a fund when you arrived they had they had a number of funds. So um, as you remember, I, I did financials for a long time. So mm-hmm. I, I do have a background as a financial specific analyst. So when I first started, I did a lot of jobs across funds. So I did financials for the Australian fund. I did Asia for the small cap fund. And I did Asia for, for the long short equity fund. Mm-hmm. So... Um, yeah, there, I, when, when I when I emailed and, and met with Ashok and some of the other people there, there wasn't a specific job, but they were like, Let's hire her. She can, yeah. she can do a lot of different things. Yeah. And then, you know, I, I worked hard. And as things turned out, I, I became an analyst that was just focusing on Asia. And then I became a PM a few years later. Hmm. Great. A lot of people that I speak to have trouble coming back from overseas to Australia and finding a job. But I imagine with your CV, it would have been pretty hard for Elston to pass up or many funds. Did you get many replies to your email? Well, the interesting thing is, so this was 2011. There were very few funds who did Asia at that mm. point. I think I sent out about four emails. And maybe I missed a few, but it was, um, um, you know, now versus the landscape. There were a lot fewer funds that, that were just focused on Asia. So, but it is a good point. I've heard that from a number of people, you know, and a number of our, our friends who from either Singapore or New York or for elsewhere in the world, they do have trouble coming back. And I think it's a, it's something that the sort of Australian human resources <laughs> industry needs to address because you know, otherwise you just get brain drain and people will, will stay away. So mm-hmm. I know there was a project a while ago, it was called like the boomerang project or something to get people to literally come back. Oh, right. Um, I, I don't know, I don't know what the, um, what the, what the issue is. Um, but yeah, I think that there's a lot of good talent overseas that would like to come home for primarily for lifestyle reasons. And it's unfortunate that they can't get good jobs here. Mm. Um, I'd like to move our focus now to your investment process yep. at Elston. We talked off air and you mentioned that there are about 10,000 shares listed in Asia or emerging markets. 
how do you go from that amount in your universe to a more manageable level? Do you use yeah. quant filters or something like that? So yeah, so the the ten thousand listed companies um, that includes every single company's micro cap to to mega cap. So we have a very strong uh, large cap focus for a number of reasons. Um, if you look at performance over the last even up to ten years, large caps outperform small caps in Asia. And we also have done a lot of analysis to show that there's more governance risk in the small caps than there are in the large caps. Mm. So you're getting higher uh, returns for lower risk in large caps. So we don't deal with any of anything with a market cap below one billion. Is that in uh, US dollars? Um, in Aussie dollars. Okay. And then we, um, our, our benchmark is MSCI Asia X Japan. So we sort of start with that. There's about 900 stocks in that now. When we started this fund, there was only about 700. But as you may know, um, Chinese A shares are getting included. So mm. that has tacked on an additional yeah. 200 in the last few years. So we start with that. And then, um, as I said earlier in the podcast, uh, I'm a growth investor. I focus on growth. And so we knock out a lot of stocks right at the beginning because they're not growth stocks. So we run a filter and companies have to have EPS growth over a three-year period, so a three-year CAGR of 10% or more. Otherwise, you know, we, we call it hurdles. There's these hurdles that companies have to jump over. And if they triple for the hur- first hurdle, which is not high enough growth, then they're out of the race. Yep. So we, we um, narrow that down to a focus list of about 100 stocks. And then those are the 100 that we focus on. So uh, there's myself and there's three analysts. So between us, there's 25 stocks each to cover, which is definitely a manageable number. Mm-hmm. And then that's how we decide what's in the portfolio. Okay. And so... You say you're a growth investor, but obviously value comes into it. Um, how, when you get to that 100, you obviously do your qualitative research. How do you go about valuing the, the companies in front of you? So one overriding thing is that we look at peg ratios quite a bit. Mm-hmm. So one thing I hear a lot, and I, I hope your, your listeners um, <laughs> don't buy into this, is that India is an expensive market. So India is a high PE market, straight around 17 times PE, but the growth is 20%. So on a, on a peg, the EPS growth is around 20%. So your peg ratio, your PE divided mm-hmm. by your growth, is less than one. So to me, that is not an expensive market at all. Expensive markets are like Australia, which may be trading at a lower PE, you know, 14 times, but maybe two, three percent growth, mm. you're, you're, you're having, you know, a peg of, of six or seven. And so, um, that's, that's one overriding thing is that we, we look at peg as a check on the whole portfolio. We try to keep the peg ratio of the portfolio around one times. And that's where it is right now. It's about 18% growth. And, um, because Asian markets didn't do well last year, the P is actually around 16 times. So that's a very attractive peg. Um, but to your specific question about how we value things, it depends on the, it depends on the sector. Mm. So, um, P is something that a lot of Asian investors use. So we obviously look at that. For financials, we use price to book. And for, for different like materials, we may use um, EV to EBITDA or wh- whatever is the, the sector sector best yeah. practice. That's what we use to value. I remember uh, I heard on a podcast that you, you did um, that you, I think it was 10 cent you value with some of the parts methodology. Yeah. Yeah, saying that there's optionality within the business and those types of things. I think that was, that was a really good way to frame it. Yeah, so ten, we do we do some of the parts for for ten cent. Ping on is another business. It's one of the the top five um, mm-hmm. stocks in our fund, and it's you know it used to be kind of a boring old insurance company, but it's really morphed itself into a fintech, and they have Lufax, which is the biggest P two P lender in in China. They have this Good Doctor business, which has been somewhat se- spun out separately, and they have all these other technology businesses. So we do some of the parts for that also. Mm-hmm. So. When I think about Asia as as a whole or emerging markets, I think Asia and I think primarily China and and in India. I think those two markets, if you're an EM investor, you probably can't avoid. Obviously, there's risks and we'll get to some of them in a moment. But when Australian investors sit back in 10 years, what are they going to miss from these two markets? 
So that's a very good question. I think Australian investors could miss India altogether. Like not just things about mm. it, the, the whole thing. Okay. So the the interesting thing is there's actually a decent amount of knowledge about China in Australia. My mm. guess is because of the commodity connection. And so I find that people are relatively, um, they, they everybody knows about China and they have an opinion about China. That opinion is often, in my view, very negative, And mm. I blame the Australian press uh, mm wholeheartedly for that. Sometimes I, 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 you know, when we meet with investors on the road and I often say, if you want to understand Asia, the first thing you should do is stop reading Australian newspapers because the, the information you're getting fed is so negatively skewed, it's, it's going to mess with your brain. So, um, the, but um, investors also understand more about China because there's much more Australian companies that have connections with China, mm-hmm. whether it's BHP or whether it's Bellamy's or Treasury Wines or whatever, the information people know about China is, is much better. So um, I, I think the chances of Australia missing China are, are relatively low, but India, People like really have no idea at all. So we have a, we have a special, um, a specific India fund, mm-hmm. and when we're marketing it and say you know by 2030 India is going to have more people than China, people are, are you serious? I have no idea. When you say do you know that the Indian stock market is bigger than Germany's? What? Are you mm. kidding me? I have no idea. When I say, do you know that the largest stock in my fund has a market cap of 140 billion? And they're like, are there stocks of 140 billion in India? Like really, and, and I, I, I can see why it's, why it's off the radar. There's no, you know, maybe besides cricket, <laughs> there, there's no natural, um, alignment between the Australian and Indian economies the way there is with China. Um, but India is really the sleeper market in, in my view, because, um, in many ways it's, it's, um, structured better than the Chinese economy. They didn't have one child policy. So the demographics in India are much more attractive. It's a domestic demand economy where China is, you know, an export development model, India's domestic demand. So when you get things like a trade war, external shocks, India remains um, isolated from that. And, um, you know, for foreign investors, uh, there's no language barriers, there's common law system. So mm. yeah, India is probably the market on a 10 year basis that I'm def- definitely the most excited about. Correct me if I'm wrong, but it's it's quite hard for Australian investors to get direct exposure to India, isn't it? it, it the, probably the best way to go is through a fund. Yeah, it's it's almost impossible. That's that. To be honest, is why we started the fund because a, a, a investor and now investors came to us and said we kind of do direct investing everywhere else in the world, and India is the one market where it's too hard. So can you can you please <laughs> do it for us? Uh, yeah, and there's not the same. Um, you know, you, to buy, there's not a, a listed ETF for India in, in Australia and to go to buy it in the US and then convert, it's, it's quite complicated. And for individual investors to get a tax ID is nearly impossible in mm. India. So yes, it's definitely better to do it through a fund. What would you say to people who have exposure to emerging markets through ASX listed shares? You mentioned Bellamy's, you've got A2 Milk, Blackmores. What would you say to them? Uh, you know, are they, are they missing something? What would be the, the weaknesses in that approach? Yeah, so I'd say two things. Um, one is that's not exposure to emerging markets. That's indirect exposure to China. Mm-hmm. And there's a huge difference. So obviously, just, just in Asia, if you just have exposure to China, you're missing India, you're missing ASEAN, um, you're missing Korea, all, all the tech stocks in, in Korea and Taiwan. So China does not equal Asia. Mm. And um, so that's one thing they're missing. The other thing I would say is that what you're paying for that exposure to China is very expensive. So, you know, some of these stocks have traded off now, but... Um, sort of at the heyday, people were paying ridiculously high PE multiples for that that China growth. And I used to say to them, if you want China growth, why don't you just buy Chinese consumer stock or invest in my fund and I'll buy the China mm. consumer stock? You know, to do indirectly, um, you, you really have to pay out for that exposure. And then the other thing I would say is that 
um, you know, we, we did a study, this is about U.S. funds. Some people say, oh, well, I'm going to get my um, exposure to China through Starbucks or through Nike. But those stocks have, you know, 20 to 25 percent of their sales from China or from Asia, which means you have 75 to 80 percent of something else, mm. which is which is not Asia. So I, I feel very strongly that a direct approach um, is, is what you want. And, you know, we were talking a little bit earlier. Um, this is something that I got from when I worked at Soros. Um, I had this idea that I thought Brazil was was going under. There was some significant macro stress in the environment. And so I thought we should short the Spanish banks because Spanish banks have exposure mm-hmm. to Brazil and this was going to be this was going to be a good idea. So when I pitched this idea and the, the feedback was, if you have a, a, a stimulus or if you have a thematic that you like, play the asset that's closest to that stimulus or to that thematic. Don't be three or four degrees of separation away. So the Spanish banks, did they go down when Brazil got into trouble? Absolutely. But did they go down as much as, as a specific asset in Brazil? Not at all. So I feel that that same way in terms of indirect exposure to, to Asia. If you want exposure to Asia, just buy Asia. Don't buy, you know, a Tasmanian, <laughs> um, you know, don't buy a company in Tasmania to get exposure to Asia. I think it's, yeah, you touched on it there. It's the, it's the efficient use of your portfolio. So if you do have the allocation to Asia or you're trying to capture that emerging markets exposure, go the most efficient route. Yep. Yeah. When I was an analyst and I was covering funds, um, I remember walking into the office and we were, at the time, I believe we were covering emerging markets fund managers. And I thought to myself, well, who would want to invest in Asia? And this comes back to your point about the press in Australia. You know, it's all corrupt. It's, you know, it's, it's backward. It's, it's never going to work. Perhaps you can touch on some of the reasons why that is probably the incorrect view. And I've come to the realization that is the incorrect view and why it may be more appropriate to have a fund manager like yourself who can get boots on the ground and actually understand the issues around governance and ESG and those types of things. Yeah. So I think, um, you know, we've done, we've done a lot of analysis about ESG and, um, the, the, the few companies that do have bad governance tend to generate significant <laughs> amounts of press, whereas there, there's the whole silent majority where, where things are fine and they, mm. they never generate any, anything negative. However, we noticed when we started this fund that people were very, very concerned about governance in Asia. And whether that's right or wrong, and, and I think both of us agree that that's, that's the wrong perspective, but you know, if I want investors to feel comfortable in my fund, I'm going to have to do something to alleviate that fear. And so we have designed a very specific ESG process, which is designed to weed out any companies that could have potential governance problems. So what we do is, first of all, we use a lot of quant screens. So we use things like the MSCI uh, ESG analysis and Rebecca scores and um, information you can get from Bloomberg. And if there are companies um, in our index that keep popping up, so they, they get a bad score on like three or four of these external providers, we just screen them out because that's telling you mm-hmm. something. Then for whatever's left for these companies that, that jump over our other hurdles, we do deep dive analysis. We have a 20-point red flag checklist that looks through everything from, you know, who is their accountant? What's the um, turnover of their CFO? What's a lot of sort of forensic accounting things that are designed to to weed out uh, potential issues? We meet with all the management teams, um, preferably face-to-face, but if there's not time, it's a, it's a sort of quick catalyst-driven thing. We have to have a phone call. So we have, you know, we know all the management teams that we invest in. And there's a number of different things. We have a very specific ESG process, and we've designed this to weed out any companies that may have issues so that investors can feel confident that the companies that we're investing in are not going to give them any governance problems. And then we also have very strict sell discipline on ESG. So if we're in a company that had ESG and something bad happens, we just get out of it straight away. JD.com is a, is a good example. JD is like the um, second largest e-commerce company in China compared to Alibaba. 
We were invested in the stock. The, the CEO and founder got into some trouble in the U.S. and got arrested. We sold it the next day. Mm-hmm. And so um, we hope that that, make, that encourages investors to, to feel comfortable with our approach and to feel comfortable in, in what's going on in Asia as a whole. Mm. I think that's one issue you get when you invest passively in emerging markets. But it's probably not the only reason why I suppose an investor would go consider going active if they're not normally active um, investors in emerging markets specifically. Can you talk about some of the, I suppose, the shortcomings of the passive approach to EM? So um, it's, a, it's a very good question. So Howard Marks, who's the, the founder and um, t- um, title now is chairman of Oak Tree, um, wrote a really good memo about this a little while ago. And he said, how much of your portfolio do you want no one paying attention to? So if you're in passive, there's no one paying attention to any of that. Mm. And uh, for me, I don't have any investments in passive. Um, okay. at all because it, it would make me nervous to have um, you know no one is looking after the whole portion of my investment no one knows what's going on with management no one's no one's looking at it and so I think you know that's that's a question that investors need to ask themselves what percentage of your Asia or emerging markets exposure do you feel comfortable nobody looking at and so you know me and my team we work very very hard we are always uh, um, looking at and um, on top of our, our portfolio and always looking for new ideas. So, so that's one thing. I guess the second thing is, um, you know, we are benchmark unaware and we have a very, uh, decidedly, very decided tilt towards new economy sectors. So the portfolio is typically about 75 to 80% tech financials and consumer. And, um, if you're an investor and you want that sort of active, active exposure, then, you know, a fund like mine would be a way that you can get it. Whereas if you just buy the whole benchmark, you're left with, um, you know, a lot of commodity companies. And this is something we've heard from our investors in Australia is they're saying, you know what, I already own BHP in Rio. <laughs> I don't need to go to emerging markets to mm. get more commodity exposure. Um, but if you, if you buy, if you're passive, you're getting commodity exposure, uh, via that way. I guess the, the other thing that I'll say is that, um, you know, over time, we do think that we can, we can add value and, and outperform a, a passive index based on our, our active approach. Mm. I suppose it's that catch, right? That these markets, are probably less efficient as well in, in some respects. Like you said about developed markets, there's a lack of growth, but it's also very competitive for that for that alpha, if you like. Um, another thing that you briefly mentioned earlier on is um, China being included into the major indices. As far as I'm aware, that hasn't fully fed through to, say, passive portfolios at the moment. Is that right? Yes, that's that's true. So if you remember, it's quite a strange situation because China is the second largest economy in the world and um, its domestic stock market, so those are A shares that trade in Shanghai or Shenzhen, weren't included in MSCI indices. So that's, mm. you know, that's, that's very weird. Um, but MSCI is quite strict and they had this set of criteria that uh, not just China, but all countries have to meet to be considered an emerging market or considered a frontier market or considered a developed market. And China systematically went through and ticked a lot of these boxes. But there still are some outstanding issues. So um, about a year ago, MSCI let A, a shares into their indices, but not with a full inclusion factor, only with a 5% inclusion factor. Mm. So that means their weight in, in emerging markets, China A shares, was still very, very small, like less than 2%. But over time, they're going to change that from 5% inclusion factor up to 100. And the next installment of that change comes at the end of this month, end of February, where that's expected to go from 5% to 20%. So that's going to be quite a big thing. We are positioned for that in the portfolio. Um, 
we have about 8% of the fund, 7, 8% of the fund in A shares. And, um, you know, we buy, they're called the QFI Darlings. These are like the best companies in, in China. They're not dual listed in Hong Kong and China. And, um, they have performed extremely well since the beginning of this year. Mm. I think on average, they're up of about 16, 17%. And do you think it's because of that capital flow that's impending, I suppose? I think there's, there's three things. One is that, um, Shanghai Comp was a terribly performing market last year. It was down over 25%. And the valuations were just so compelling. I mean, some of the consumer stocks that we own, like Wuliongye, which is white liquor, or Medea, you know, these are stocks that are trading at, well, Medea anyway is trading at 11 times P and it still has 20% growth. So, um, yeah, the valuations were, were quite compelling. Mm-hmm. The second thing is China. Because the trade war is um, de-escalating, certainly, and there may be a resolution on the on the horizon, um, China stands to benefit from that more. And then the third thing would be that fund flow in anticipation mm. of, of A-share increased inclusion. Mm. We've talked a lot about um, this opportunity set, I suppose. Let's take the other side of the debate. Let's talk about some of the risks. And at the moment in the headlines, the two things that people are probably most worried about, um, we'll take them one at a time, I guess, is firstly the trade war. Yeah. So how do you see that? At, at the moment, we're talking about this in early 2019. Where do you see that um, going over the next, say, year? And how does it play out? So for about a year now, or almost since since Trump's inauguration, we were laying out a couple of scenarios for the trade war. One was tit-for-tat escalation, which is what we saw last year. So the U.S. would say, we're going to impose tariffs on this, you know, 50 billion of goods and China would do the same. Then the US would do a higher number and China would do a higher number. That's kind of played out because they both run out of room in terms of, of imports and, and exports. Um, the second scenario that we talked about was a negotiated outcome and the third was extreme retaliation. So extreme retaliation were things like, you know, weaponization of the RMB. That's what it's called where China just keeps devaluing the RMB to offset the impact of the tariffs. Or, you know, they sell all their treasuries and it really screws things up for the US. Or, um, you know, they say, okay, Starbucks, you can't sell Starbucks in China. We're banning Apple iPhones or something like that. Extreme retaliation was always a very, very small probability that was going to happen. And that maintain, we maintain that view today. So where we're kind of at is a negotiated outcome. And this is, is the most likely outcome. You've seen so far this, or going back to November of last year, there was the meeting at Buenos Aires at the G20. And Trump and Xi decided to have a 90-day moratorium on any more tariffs. And so that moratorium finishes at the end, the beginning of March, March 1st. And so going into that March 1st deadline, there's been a lot of back and forth. So a Chinese delegate delegation went to the US, an American delegation was in China at the end of last week, and then Trump and Xi are, are expected to meet um, sometime probably in March. So they are going to miss the, the March deadline, that's probably going to be extended. But we're quite hopeful that there's going to be some sort of uh, agreement reached in the in the near term as in like two months or less. And the reason is, both sides are much more incentivized to get something done now than they were a year ago. Um, you know, the Chinese economy is decelerating quite obviously, not not dramatically, but it is decelerating and China needs to do something to arrest the negative impact of the trade war. And in the US, you know, Trump um, has lost a lot of political capital over the shutdown and over the wall. And um, he also doesn't control Congress anymore. And there's a, <laughs> an election coming up, not in the too distant future for a presidential election. So I think for all those reasons, both sides are incentivized to get something done. And we're pretty hopeful that it will get done in the next two months. Speaking of walls, um, there's this talk of the China's Great Wall of Debt, and it's probably this structural thing that's been going on in the background. You've worked through a few crises in your time. Can you explain what this wall of debt is, um, and I suppose how, again, how you see that playing out? Yeah. 
So I think back, back to the comment about um, the Australian press, th this is one thing who, that the Australian press just hammers on and hammers on and hammers on. And to be frank, they've been wrong for a good 15 years now about mm -hmm. it. And not just the Australian press. So I, I was covering the Chinese banks when they all IPO'd in 2000, is around 2005, 2006. And at the time, people were like, you cannot buy Chinese banks. There's this huge wall of debt. The NPL problem is going to blow up. This is just a, a big ploy to IPO and suck people's money in so that they can restructure the banks. And literally, that was 15 years ago. And there's been no problem. So I'm not saying that there's not a problem, but I, I certainly don't lose sleep over this. I, I also find it quite ironic that in Australia, where household debt, disposable income is astronomically high. And you know, Sam can tell you every single meeting that we go to, people ask about, uh, about Chinese debt. Mm. And I feel like saying, you want to worry about something? <laughs> Please <laughs> worry about a problem a little bit closer to home. So um, that said, that what what happened with Chinese debt is that um, you know they do have a, a fixed asset and for for a number of years they had a fixed asset investment driven um, economic model mm -hmm. and that increased the debt and then during the GFC China actually did relatively well during the the GFC versus a lot of other countries but that's because they did it at gargantuan stimulus in in two thousand eight which also increased the debt and then you know since then. There's, there hasn't been, really been any deleveraging. In fact, in like 2015, 16, there's quite a sharp increase in the amount of leverage. So there's a couple of things that China can do to, to, um, address this. Uh, I, I'm sorry if I'm going into too much detail, but, but a banks analyst explained this to me really well a few years ago. He, his view was that Chinese, say Chinese GDP growth is six to seven percent. Um, but there's misallocation of capital. So you have misallocation to SOEs that aren't productive. You have misallocation to infrastructure projects that are make work, et cetera, et cetera. Then if you have a major misallocation of capital, your debt is going to have to be growing faster than GDP because of all the misallocation. Mm. And because of that, if you have, you know, obviously if your debt is growing faster than your GDP, your debt to GDP is going up, it's going to go up significantly. So I think um, with a lot of the supply side reform and the SOE reform, China is trying to address that misallocation of, of capital issue. And when they can do that, then I think that the, you know, the debt problem, it will still be a debt problem, but it will be a stock problem, not a flow problem in terms of it's, it's continuing to get worse. So, um, you know, that, that's sort of what I'm watching. Uh, but again, it's not, I don't think that there's an immediate near-term catalyst that makes me worried about investing in China because of the debt. Mm. I suppose that's reassuring because, like you said, it's very negative. But um, And it, I, I suppose that's what we forget. It's pretty easy to build a negative picture in our head and how things could go wrong. That's what we're always worried about, right? Yeah. Like loss of version bias. I guess the, the other thing I'll mention is there are a lot of um, hedge funds, particularly in the U.S., who are short China, and they are out talking their own book. So Kyle Bass is one example, and he's been wrong for four. I mean, he, he China China had in 2017 uh, or Hong Kong, anyways, had had a very strong market. And so when you're listening to people in the press, just um, you know, I'm talking my own book here, right? Because I'm long China. But when you hear people being negative about China. Think about who they are and what their intentions are, because they're probably short China and they're, you know, selling that side of the story. Mm, that's good advice. Um, OK, so we've heard a bit about you and your investment process. How can people find out more about you and about the funds that you run? Yeah, so I guess the first place to start would be on the Ellerston Capital website. Mm -hmm. And um, there's uh, we I run a fund, um, Ellerston Asia Growth Fund, which is unlisted, Ellerston Asian Investments, which is a, an LIC, and then we also have an India fund. So that would be a good place to start. Um, I also do um, a lot of press and uh, podcasts, so mm -hmm. thank you very much for for, um, for interviewing me. Um, yeah, and you could find me on LinkedIn also. I, I am quite active on LinkedIn. Um, and I'll provide links to all of that in the show notes. A couple 
last things I, I wanted to, to cross off my list. And uh, given your impressive CV, I did touch on this earlier, and I, I wanted to ask who is perhaps the, the best investor you've worked with or perhaps the, the investor that you found most insightful and, and, and why you found them to be that of that calibre, I suppose. Um, I would have to say Ashok Jacob, who's obviously the, the chairman and CIO of, of Elliston. So um, I work more closely with Ashok than, than I have with, with, say, George Soros or with, um, with Howard Marks. And he is a very, very good investor. And he also knows Asia very well. And he knows India very well. And so I've learned a, a lot from him. And he also has the ability to think differently. Um, he, he doesn't follow the crowd. And so I've learned a lot from his insights and his ability just to take a totally different perspective. So I'd have to say Ashok. And that's, <laughs> it's nice to say that my, my current boss is the person who I've, I've learned the most from. Mm, and, and especially after all of the experience that you've had, that's great. Uh, final question. If you could go back and tell a younger you one thing about money, finance or investing, what would it be? Oh, that's a, that's a tough one. Um, I would say start early. This would be my big advice. This is what I tell my kids. I have an 11-year-old and an 8-year-old. And um, every night at dinner, you have to come to the dinner table with a piece of news. And tragically, since I'm just looking at markets all day, invariably my news is about markets. Um, so I would say start young because, you know, as I said, when I, when I got to New York, I was pretty clueless. And if I had just been a little bit more informed, I think it, it would have, it would have been better. And a lot of these skills, you know, investing is, is, um, they're skills that you build over time. No one hits the ground running as a, mm. as a fantastic investor. So I think the earlier that you can start, um, the better off you'll be in the long term. That's great advice. Mary, thank you for joining me on the podcast. Great. Thanks very much for having me. Thanks again for tuning in to the Australian Investors Podcast. For further episodes, head to www.raskfinance.com. To provide feedback, nominate a guest or hear from me, you can find me on Twitter with the handle at Owen Rask. Cheers to our financial futures.